And that's, that's as pure as you can get. And then he goes on in 6.23 and says this, but. Now, if you ever read a passage of scripture and there's a but, always go back and read the first bit again. Because in the first bit, he's building something up. So in 6.23, he says this, the wages of sin is death. Then in 6.23b, he says this, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the gift that he has for you this morning and for me. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a great passage of scripture. I've been in the church a long, long time. I'm 46 years old. I've been in the church since I was 18. And um, I've heard lots of people preach. And um, I've heard lots of people talk at a stage. I've been basically to church every week of my life since I was, I was that old. And uh, you hear a lot of people say a lot of things. Some of it's wrong. You know, they're good people and they mean well. They're just not being listening when other people talk, I think. I'm not sure. But, you know, some people get things wrong. And we live, we're in a great church, and everything I've heard from this pulpit is fabulous. But I have been in churches where you think, wonder where he got that from, because it's not in my Bible. <laughs> I've, uh, I've seen a guy preach a sermon that was um, from an old wives' tale. He didn't talk about the Bible at all, didn't mention it at all, just talked about this old wives' tale. And I thought, I'm not sure what you, where you're going with that, but um, that's what he did. The Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you because he looked down the channels of time and seen that you were going to be a great man or woman of God. He died because you were a sinner. He died because I was a sinner. And when I was doing the worst possible thing I've ever done in my life, that's when Jesus died for me. He died because I needed him to die for me. Because without that, I was lost in my sin. And that's what the, this, this passage tells us. God demonstrated his love for us. Why we were still sinners, he died for us. Romans 10, 13 tells us this. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. From within the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. What? A marvelous book, jammed full of theology, jammed full of gems, jammed full of truth. The passage I want to look at today is Romans 8, verses 18 to 39. Now, it's a, it's a big passage of Scripture, so I'm not going to read it. What I want you to do is when you go home, I want to read it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick out some of the pieces and this is just the introduction. So when I say I've got 10 things I want to pick out, don't panic. That's not the sermon, okay? It's only the introduction. <laughs> now you're all panicking. I think the, the longest ever preached was two and a half hours. Go for it. <laughs> My wife says, don't preach that long. But that's okay. That's what wives are meant to do, ain't they? They're meant to teach us. The passage I want to look at today falls right at the end of the section of the book of Romans that has at its center the truth that righteousness comes from faith. It is right at that end. And if you read through that, you will come up with 10 things. There's more, but 10 things that I've come up with is this. One, 
And these are truths. Paul wrote this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You know, you are a walking testimony of God. And God's glory is to be revealed through you. And at times in our Christian life, we suffer. In fact, it's a promise. Jesus promised that you would suffer. You know, if you think you're a Christian and you're going to live this wonderful life that never has a problem in it, I encourage you to read your Bible. I've never seen any single person in this book that has that life. Uh, The book is a whole lot of people that have struggles and, and are persecuted and have pain and trouble and sorrow, but in the end, glorify God. And in our lives, that's what we're meant to do. So Paul starts with that. I mean, if you look at Paul's life, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was shipwrecked, he, was, he went hungry, he went naked, he was lowered in a basket. All sorts of horrible things happened to Paul. So he starts it off with this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You are going to reveal the glory of God. You are going to reveal the glory of God to your neighbors, your friends, your workmates, your colleagues. They might not see it yet, but it will happen. As long as you're faithful, as long as you're praying that God will do that, it will happen. The next thing Paul says is that we've got this glorious freedom as children of God. The next thing he says that that we are waiting eagerly for adoption of son, the redemptions of our bodies. Thank God for that, amen. Yeah, this thing's going to be redeemed. I tell you, just about worn it out. When I go to heaven, there's not going to be much left. My arms, my shoulders don't work, my knees don't work. My plan is to have it fully worn out by the time I get there. So that uh, the new body will be good and I'll be happy. The next thing we read is we don't know what we ought to pray for. Who knows that's the truth? Sometimes you've got to pray and you just don't know what to pray. It says this, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that cannot be expressed. The next thing we, we see in this passage is this, and we know that in all things God works for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. The next thing we see is this. For those God he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. The next thing we see is, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? The next thing we see, he who has not spared his own son, but has given him for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The next thing we see, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And the final thing is this. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demon, nor the present, nor the future, nor any power, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a passage of scripture. You could take each one of those and, and, and preach a, a series of sermons for 10 weeks on that easily. Maybe 20 weeks if you split them up into two. You could just keep going. And that's one short passage of Scripture in this, in this wonderful book called Romans. I encourage you to read it. Now, if you take all those things I've just said, I've tried to break it down and put it into one phrase. One catchy little phrase that everyone can remember. And I struggled a fair bit. I struggled a lot because it is jam-packed. That's my lovely granddaughter. (laughs) One sentence, one statement that would bring this all together. I've decided to call it the God advantage. Look at that. See those bright little things in the middle of that picture? That's actually a universe sort of next to house. And those bright little um, things are stars. 
And they are 150 times bigger than our sun. 150 times bigger than our sun. That's how big those things are. I mean, that's awesome. God is awesome, amen? You look, you look at our planets and how it all works together, and you think, wow, God is this God of order and everything's straight. And then you look beyond our universe and you just fall apart. I mean, everything that's created out there, and, you know, the Bible says it's created for us. Everything that's created out there is just enormous and huge and wonderful and exciting and beautiful. I mean, all that, all that color in that is incredible. And God created all that. But what we need to understand is that as Christians, we are to live a life with what I call a God advantage. We are not like the normal person in the street that goes through life struggling and straining to try and get life to happen. We are children of the living God. We are called by name. We have a destiny, a future and a hope that is in Christ. We have all those things that God freely gives us. But sometimes we still live like paupers. Sometimes we don't grab hold of what God's given us. Sometimes we sit there and think that we're hopeless. Think that the world's too big. Think that we've got all these troubles in our lives that keep us from being the person God wants us to be. Poppycock. Not true. Rubbish. We are children of the living God. We are called by name for a purpose and a destiny. There is no doubt about it. Let me go on and just give you just a few little more nuggets that you find in the Bible. Deuteronomy 28 says this, For the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. 2 Chronicles 4.17, Declare that if my people, I declare that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Philippians 4, 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in heaven. Hallelujah. Our God is a great God. He is the God that has chosen you. He is the God that knows how many hairs are on your head. All the hairs that have fallen off, he knows where they are. <laughs> And all the ball men say, Amen, Gary. <laughs> Here's, I've got to sweep it forward now, Gary. It's starting to peak a bit. I've got to sweep it forward these days. <laughs> we, had, uh, we had worked with a guy that done the big comb over. It was really good every time my income would come down. It was about that long. We put it all back in a place, a little bit more oil, put it down. It was great. <laughs> but God is this awesome God. Sometimes I don't think we understand. I don't think, I don't think there's a, the pennies dropped in our spirits yet of the authority that we have as Christians. It's not what I'm going to talk about today. It's actually what I'm going to talk about in a minute. But I, I am convinced I don't understand it fully. I, the penny hasn't dropped in my spirit what it means to have the authority. Jesus says, all authority I have, I give to you. I mean, that is an awesome passage of Scripture. And, and I'm going to be preaching about that in men's breakfast. By the way, I promise I won't cook so you can come along. You don't have to uh, fear food poisoning or anything like that. <laughs> so it's going to be a great time to come along. The first point that I want to bring today, and I'm going to, I've got a, I've written this out, and it's nearly 20 pages long. So I don't want to put you through that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a passage of scripture. I want you to go home and read it. I'm going to tell you stories. Who likes stories? I love stories. So the first passage of scripture is found in 1 Kings 
18, 22 to 29. And it's the prophet Elijah. Now, I love the prophet Elijah. He was uh, a mighty man of God that done some wonderful things. But I just um, resonate with his character. He is an amazing, amazing guy. He was around the time of uh, when the kings were um, doing uh, bad in the eyes of the Lord. If you read through the book of Kings 1 and 2, um, at the end of every king, it'll either say, this king um, did well in the eyes of the Lord and the people flourished, or it will say something like, this king done evil in the eyes of the Lord and the people were perishing or something similar to that. So all the kings get this little note at the bottom of, of their little story about what they did. And they'll either say they're good or they're bad. They either love God or they didn't. Now, Elijah comes along when there's been three kings that are bad. And they've basically destroyed the altar. There's no more worship going on. Ahab comes along. He fully endorses the worship of Baal, the um, Philistine, Philistinian god. And they basically just do away with Yahweh, the true God. And uh, a few prophets arise. Elijah's one of them. He, um, he's noted for a couple of things. One thing he's noted for is he went and hid in the cave for a while. The ravens came and fed him. And who knows, sometimes you want to go hide in the cave. Who knows, sometimes when you're being a Christian and times are a bit tough, you want to go hide in the cave. Amen? Who knows that? Am I the only one? Hands up there. Okay, I feel safe now. I can share with you because we got the same thing going on. You know, and that's what Elijah did. At this part of the story, he's walked back to Jerusalem and he's decided that he's going to have a showdown with the prophets of the false gods. And he says to them, he goes, okay, there's 400 of you, one of me. You know, sometimes as Christian, you feel like there's 400 of them and one of you. Your workplace, you might feel there's 400 of them and one of you, amen? And that's what Elijah was. He was sitting there. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one. I'm the only prophet. And that's what he was doing and that's what he's feeling like. But he heard from God. So what he did was he said, let's have a showdown. You get a bull, I get a bull. We cut them up and we sacrifice them. And we see who God listens. Which God is going to listen, your God or my God? So I really connect with him during this part of the story. Because what he does is he lets them go first. A gentlemanly thing to do. You guys go first. You know, I'm happy if you guys go first. Do your best, because I know it won't work. He had enough faith in God to know that nothing was going to happen. So 400 of these dudes, they get a, a beast, they cut it up into portions, they put it on an on a altar for sacrifice. And then what they do is they try and um, get their God to bring fire down from heaven. And they start praying and they start going into trances. And the Bible says they cut themselves so they bleed and they throw themselves on the ground. This goes on hour after hour, hour after hour. Then at about 12 o'clock, so it started about 9, at about 12 o'clock, this is the part I like. Elijah starts mocking them. That's what I'd do. I'd jump straight in there. <laughs> What's he, asleep? In the Hebrew, it actually says, you better check, he might be on the toilet. They don't, they don't put that in English versions. because I don't know why, but they don't. You might want to check. I think he's on the toilet. Is he asleep? What's going on? Shout louder. Come on, boys. Give it your best. Oh, you can do better than that. And the whole time, Kim versus 400, and he's mocking. Mock, 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 mock. Your God is nothing. He is pathetic. He is puny. One drop of fire. That's all we need. Come on, boys. You're cutting yourself. Oh, maybe you need to do more. You know, and for hours, he just sat there and mocked them, mocked them, mocked them. He said, you giving up? 
You had enough? Because now God is going to do something. Now that you've tried all that you can, watch what God can do. He got, the, he got a few Israelites together. He said, boys, let's grab 12 stones. Let's rebuild the altar. The altar was destroyed. There was no worship. There was no sacrifice in Israel. It was destroyed. He said, come on, boys, get 12 rocks. Let's rebuild the altar. Let's make this thing happen. So the boys get together with him. They rebuild the altar. He uh, puts some wood. He gets the beast. He cuts it up into sections. He puts it on there. And then, like me, he thought, what's well, too easy for God? Let's dig a dirty big hole around it and fill it full of water. You know, let's chuck water on the, on the, on the, on the um, wood that we're going to burn. Let's just smother this thing in water. Sometimes that's what our faith needs to do. It needs to go beyond what we want and ask for more. You know, Elijah could have just asked for the fire to come down. It would have come down. But he said, that's not enough. I want to show these guys something. I want to show them that even if man does everything to stop this, God can still do it. Let's get water and throw it on there. Let's build a big trench full of water. He prays and that's what happens. This is a famous piece of art. And it's uh, Elijah calling the fire down. It came down and consumed everything. It even, even sucked up the water in the trench. What do we understand from this? We understand with the God advantage, one with God is a majority. One with God is a majority. It doesn't matter if you've got 400 people, 4,000 people, 40,000 people against you. One person standing with God for the truth is a majority and will always win. You might feel that you're at work. I've worked in play. I work in construction industry, and uh, it's very rare to find Christians in construction industry. If, if they're there, they don't. They're not vocal. <sighs> Unfortunately for everyone that walks around, works around me, they know I'm a Christian. They've got no doubt about it. Oh, they uh, they used to call me, and the, it was mocking to start with, but it became a uh, a term of endearment eventually. But, but they started mocking me, and they used to call me Pastor Flagon. <laughs> Pastor Flagon. Pastor Flagon. Pastor Flagon. That's what they used to call me. And they started off as a mocking thing, but eventually ended up in this term of endearment, and they loved it. Pastor Flagon, come here, mate. You know, and one guy started to mock, and God turned it around. And it was, they loved, you know, Pastor Flagon, come here. <laughs> so they thought it was a great thing. But when God tells you to do something, and you know it's God that's telling you to do it. It's not your imagination. It's not the pizza you had the night before. But you know, but you know, but you know that God's telling you to do something. You need to do it. And even if 400 people come and stand against you, still believe it. One with God is a majority. And that's the truth that we find in this God advantage. The next story is a great story. It's about Gideon. How many people have seen the film 300? 300 is a, is a true story. A lot, of it's, a lot of it in the movie is fiction. It's about a Spartan king called Leonidas. I've read a lot of books about the Spartans over years because I love history. And uh, a lot of it's true. Some of it's not, but a lot of it's true. And Leonidas, he went down because the Persian kings were coming in and they were going to take over. 
So he met them at this pass because he knew that it was a, a thin little pass and that they couldn't get past him. He, they would have to kill him to get through. And that's the only way to get to Sparta. There's no other way. You can't go any other way. There's this little ravine. And the only way to get to Sparta is through that ravine. So he grabs the 300 warriors and he takes them down there. And uh, they start to fight. One of the true things that is in the movie that is also a historical fact is at one point the Persian king and him are negotiating. And the Persian king says, we are going to fill the skies with arrows so it's going to be dark. Well, Leonidas, I like him. He's a funny guy. He said, we love fighting in the shade. That's great. We love fighting in the shade. If you can do that for us, we'll love it. Thank you very much. Because what the uh, Spartans did, they, they believed if you had to fight from a long distance, you were a coward. That was their understanding. Because they had short swords and they wanted to see the person die. So if, um, if you used arrows or long things, you were a coward. So he said, beauty, if that's your strategy, we will win. The only reason they lost was because um, one of the people that were from Sparta that were rejected by his country... Um, went and told the Persians how to get around the hill and get to them. This story is much better. The Midianites and the Amorites and a whole lot of otherites from the eastern side of the Jordan decide that what they're going to do is they're going to come into uh, Israel and just rape and pillage. So they go through and they start killing everything in the way. They're, They're stealing all the crops. They're killing every living thing. There's not a living thing left as they go through. Gideon starts to rally the troops. Now, it says in the Bible that there was that many people in the army against the Israelites that you couldn't even count the camels they had, let alone the people. It said there was that many camels, it was like the sands of the sea. There was that many camels. So they couldn't even fight. There was no way they were ever going to win. Except for the God factor, the God advantage. So what happens is Gideon gets an army together he puts a call out and he says i need an army to face this we're going to do this together in god we are going to conquer and he gets this army together and at the moment he's he's moving in the flesh you know sort of and who knows how many sometimes we can do that and he was moving in the flesh because he said this army i'm going to beat them i need as many people as i can get to stand behind me and fight this army and god says hang about don't forget i'm here and God says, you've got 40,000 soldiers here ready to fight these people that we can't count. I think you need to cut the number back a bit. You know, 40,000 beat them. Everyone will go, what a great army. But if sort of a lesser figure can beat them, they'll say, what a God. So Gideon goes out and he goes, listen, guys, if anyone's fearful, if you're worried, if you're scared at all, if you're a little bit worried, pack up and go home. So out of the 40,000, 30,000 left. Bang, 10,000, army of 10,000. Now Gideon's sort of saying, we can still do this, 10,000, that's enough. I mean, they are Israelites. God's with us, we can do it. God says, hang about, there's still too many. Gideon scratches her head, says, I'm not sure about this. God says, no, 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 no. He says, get them all to go and have a drink in the, in the, in the stream. So um, there was two different styles of the way they drank. Some of them went down on their knee and cupped the water and drank it. Others went down and lipped it like a dog, like a dog would lap water up. And he said, see those guys lapping the water like a dog? They're your army. So 10,000 turned into 300. 
10,000 turned into 300. So Gideon had 300 people with him. Sorry? Drinking was the other way around. Thank you, scholar. (laughs) The drinking was the other way around. So they're down to 300 men. And there's a vision and a dream and that dream's calculated and they go down and they split the army into three people and they go here and they go there and go there and sound the trumpet. The Bible tells us that there was so much confusion in the enemy camp that they started killing each other. Those 300 people really didn't have to fight that much. They just mopped up at the end. God won the battle for them. If one with God is a majority, one with a few good men can... Can, can win any battle. You don't need hundreds of thousands of people to win a battle when you've got God because you've got the God advantage. All you need is a few good men. They went from 40,000 to 300. All you need is a few good men. All you need is a few good men to beat any army that the world can bring against you. All the demons of hell can come and affect you and all you need is a few good men and God. How God is more than able. He is the great I am. At one part when Jesus is being, uh, is, is with Caesar. Oh, sorry, not Caesar, sorry. He's with um, Herod. Herod? Who's he with? Pilate. Pontius Pilate. He's with Pontius Pilate. And uh, they say, tell me who you are. And he goes, I am. Ego a me in Greek. If you read it in Greek, it says this. Ego a me. Now, nowhere else in, in this text does that word appear, ego a me. It is Greek, and it means I am. And the reason why that word doesn't appear anywhere else in this text is because in the Greek version, the Septuagint of the Bible, the Old Testament, when God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh, and Moses says, who should I say sent me? God said, ego a me. I am. When Jesus says it, make no mistake about it, Jesus was saying that he was God. You see that from the reaction of the people. They tear their clothes, they do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. He declared that he was God. But what he declared is this, I am. Now to us, that means so much. I am the God of all creation. I am the God that healeth me. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am the provider. I am, I am, I am. God is everything you need. He is your I am. He is your I am. Whether you're facing a few people, whether you're facing a horde of marauding Neanderthals like Gideon did, I am is there with you. I am is more than able to do whatever he needs to do to help you out. I am is always there. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never goes on holidays. He never sits on the toilet like the God of Baal. He doesn't do those things. He's always there. The last story. If you turn to the book of Acts. This is the last thing I want to share with you today. We read in Acts 1, 12 to 14 this. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. A Sabbath day walk from the city. So that's about four hours. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present there were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together in prayer along with the women, the mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
So what you have is this church. The Messiah has just been killed. Now, this Jewish expectation of the time, I'm sure you all know, was that Jesus would rise up and defeat Rome. That was their expectation. You know, a lot of people theorize the reason why Judas um, betrayed Jesus was because Judas was getting tired that things weren't happening quick enough. His understanding was that Jesus would bring a kingdom, a Jewish kingdom in. That was his understanding, his mindset. So when Judas betrayed Jesus, whether it's true or not, some scholars believe, he'd done it to force Jesus' hand so that Jesus would bring down the angels from heaven. They would wipe Rome off the face of the earth and Israel would be again. That was their understanding. That's what they thought would happen. They didn't understand. And again and again and again, Jesus says, you just don't understand. My kingdom's not of this earth. He goes on and says, you don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand. Because his kingdom is not a kingdom that is bound by me geography. His kingdom is a kingdom that lives in you or me. There's no boundaries to it. It's there forever. It's with us wherever we go. New believers come in, it grows. That's the kingdom of God. So you've got these men of God, the Messiah's died. They still fully don't understand. They don't comprehend. They can't comprehend. You know, the only reason we understand as much as what we do is because the Spirit of God reveals it to us. There's this impartation of understanding that happens to us as Christians. What you call revelation. And it's that Spirit of God that reveals the things of God to us. And at this point, those men of God that followed Jesus didn't have that yet. Pentecost hadn't come. They were scared men. They went up and hid in the room. There was 11 of them, a few others, some, some women, the brothers of Jesus, all in this room hiding because they did not understand. They've been with Jesus again. He's gone and he's ascended to heaven. And they go, why? And the angel comes. And, and even that tells you. The angel comes and says, why are you still here? Why are you still here? He's gone. What did he tell you to do? Go back and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. So that's what they did. They went back, they prayed, and they waited. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. What a revelation these guys had. Peter, a changed man. The sermon that he preaches in Acts chapter 2 did not come from him. Make no mistake about it. He didn't think like that. It came from the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 1, 4 says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separating and coming to rest on each of them. All of them were filled. Everyone say all. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Acts 2, 14 to 21. This is part of Peter's, Peter, Peter's sermon. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. To this point, he's been hiding in a room upstairs like a coward. All of a sudden... Full of the Holy Ghost. Peter stands up. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit to all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. 
the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, the Lord. And everyone who calls on the Lord's name will be saved. Just skip down to verse 40. With many words, he warned them and pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. For those who accepted this message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to the numbers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone who was filled with awe and many wonders and miracles and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were there together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in the house and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. So the church of Jesus Christ is birthed. One, one man with God is a majority. A few good men with God can beat any army. But a group of believers joined together in one accord and one purpose can change the world. Can change the world, literally. If you read on in the book of Acts, Acts 3, 1 tells this. Uh, Acts 3, 1, sorry, to... 431 is the story of the healing of the crippled man and the consequences of that. Remember it? He says, uh, Peter goes up and says, Gold or silver, I have not, do not have for you, but what I have for you uh, is get up and walk. So he pulls him by the hand, he gets up and he starts walking. And then the Sadducees and the Pharisees arrest them and beat them up and tell them not to go and talk about Jesus again. First thing they did when they got out and told him about Jesus. Good men. In Acts 432 and 511, we see a unified church. And again, this theme of them being one and having all things in common, in common is there. In Acts 5, 12 to 42, we see the miracles and wonders through the church and the start of persecution. In Acts 6, 1, 3, uh, not to 9, 3 to 9, 31, we see the full persecution of the church. We see the death of Stephen, the first martyr, and the subsequent expansion of the church, the salvation of Paul. Up until this point, up till when Stephen dies, the apostles are very, very happy with their life. They've got they've, people added to the church every day. You know, they, they've got a good thing going on. They, you know, they've, they've got a few guys helping them now. There's some deacons behind them, and they're helping take away all the problems with the widows not being fed and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the, the guys are happy. You know, once in a while they get chucked in a jail and beaten up and that, but they still go out and they preach Jesus. They're pretty happy at this point. You know, things aren't too bad. But then Stephen's killed. And this is a, a catalyst. It's a pivotal point in the history of the church. Stephen is, is stoned as the first martyr. And I don't know if, you, if you've read the story. You should read it. Um, heaven and earth, heaven opens up and he, he says, There I see the Son of Man. Um, seated at the right hand of God. But there was one person there at the time. He, he wasn't throwing stones. He was in the background over there. And uh, what everyone did is they came and they took their cloaks off and they put them at the feet of this guy. And they went and picked up their stones. I don't know if you've ever seen someone stoned um, to death. Um, there was a film, film clip on CNN uh, about eight months ago. A woman got stoned to death um, because a Muslim woman got stoned to death because they said she had an affair with a married man. The married man wasn't the scene, but they actually just pelted stones and killed her. It was very very horrific to watch um but that's the reality of what happened to Stephen 
And standing over there in the corner is a guy called Saul. And the reason why they brought their coats to him is because Saul, Saul is a Pharisee. He's one of the great Pharisees. And the significance of them putting their coat at his feet is that he is endorsing religiously what is happening now. He is giving his authority as a Pharisee to what they're doing. The man that would one day be a missionary for Jesus. He would die for Jesus. The man who wrote most of our Bible. The man who saw people healed, saw people saved. He grew churches. He'd done everything. Was standing there watching. Not only watching, but giving his approval to Stephen being stoned to death. All of a sudden, the church is dispersed. It's no longer stuck in one geographical place. Did Stephen have to die for the church to expand? I don't know. But before that, they weren't going anywhere. They were quite happy in their little club. You know, sometimes, sometimes things have to happen so that the gospel can go out. And that's what happened there. It's, it's a, I, I can't wait to get to heaven to meet him and get his spin on it, Stephen. Because it is without doubt the thing that enabled us to be saved. Without Stephen being martyred, the church would be a sect in Jerusalem and that's all it would be. Without Stephen giving his life, you and I wouldn't be here today. Without Stephen looking beyond himself and sacrificing everything, the church of Jesus Christ would be a little tiny Jewish sect in the back of Jerusalem somewhere that was probably gone by now but he built his church amen he built his church and he's called you here today and he's called me here today and he's called all those people in the suburb we live that aren't saved to be saved how role and how job is hopefully not to die like Stephen even though plenty of Christians do plenty of Christians do every week of the year and all you need there's a website that talks about martyrs um, and, and people get killed all the time we had, um, when we were at Bible college or just after Bible college, I think, we met these people and we knew these people and um, the, their uncle got killed in India. Him and his son were burnt in a car, set on fire by some Indians. I don't know if you remember, it was years ago. We actually knew, we knew some of the people that were his, his relatives and that, they struggled with that a fair bit. But what that did was help grow the church. Lots of people got saved because of that. You know, and sometimes we don't understand it. And, you know, God says my ways are not your ways. And sometimes we don't understand those things. But one thing we do know is that with God, we've got an advantage. Because the very hordes of hell tried to stop the church. They started to stop it in its tracks. They grabbed the boys. They put them in prison. They beat the living daylights out of them. They sent them back out and said, don't do this again. Saul gets his taste for blood right there and then. He sets out across the known world trying to kill Christians. That's his role and purpose in life. He wants to be one of the greatest Pharisees ever. And he sees that his purpose in life is to crush this thing before it takes off. So he sets out and he's got letters from everyone to saying that he can just go in, he can find these people from the sect and he can put them to death. On the way to a town, all of a sudden, boom! He meets Jesus. He's thrown from a horse. He's blinded. And he meets Jesus. The church goes on. It grows and it grows and it grows. 
Acts 12, 25, 15, 35, you see the expansion of the church beyond Antioch and the Apostle Decree in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, 36 to 19, 20, Paul starts his mission trips. And finally, in Acts 19, 21 through to 28 and 31, we see Paul's plan to visit Rome, the reason why he wrote the Roman letter. In the book of Acts, we see what God can do with the church when it's walking in unity and power. The gates of hell can come against it, and it stands. It doesn't only stand, but it flourishes. It grows beyond expectation. It keeps taking uh, land for God. It keeps seeing people saved because God will build his church. One with God is a majority. God with a few good men can beat any army. But God with a church of believers that are unified, that have the Holy Spirit, we can change the world. We can change the world. This church today can change the very world we live in. In Acts 17, 2 and 6, it says this. As is his custom, Paul went in the synagogue, and there on the Sabbath day he reasoned from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and raise from the dead. Then Jesus, uh, sorry, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in the search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did, uh, But when they were there, they did not find him. They dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city's officials, shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. In another passage of scripture, they shouted, These men have turned the world upside down. That is our job. We are here to turn the world upside down. Whether it's one against an army, whether it's a few of us uniting together to beat an army, or whether it's all of us as one contending for the last of this world. That's what we're called to do. That's the God advantage. That's why we're here. We're not here to play church. You've got to have church. And I love church. But that's not why we're here. We're here to build the church. We're here to build the church. It takes each and every one of you. It takes each and every one of the people that are currently in kids' church teaching. The, the people in the back in the cafe. It takes everyone to build the church. But we have this thing that I call a God advantage. We have this thing within us that is born of the Spirit that means we cannot lose. Sure, we might lose our lives, but in the end, what a victory. Stephen's life was lost, but the church was birthed. All of a sudden, people that weren't Jewish became Christians. From that point on, it was never going to change. Jesus Christ has started to build his church in a new way, in a way that accepted people, no matter of color, creed, um, ethnicity. Jesus started to build his church. So what does all this mean? It means that we know in all things God works for good for those that love him, who are called according to his purpose. It means that in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. It means that if God is with us, then who can stand against us? It means that even if it was just you and me against the world, we would be the majority. It means that to defeat an army, all you need is a few good men. 
And finally, it means that together, unified in spirit and purpose, we can change the world. We can turn it on its head. One accord, one purpose, one effort to fulfill the call and destiny that God has given this church. I'm fully convinced that God can do anything. I'm fully convinced he can do this. I'm fully convinced that this church can change the world. Why? Because God is God and we are too. For no other reason. We have a great church. I've been here since the beginning of the year. And I can honestly tell you this is the place where I feel at home. We have a fabulous church. But to be able to go to the next level, we need to unify. We need to be of one purpose. And that purpose is simple. Glorify God. It's not difficult. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. So read the Bible. Glorify God and spread His word. You know, we've, this church has done some great things. And the missions team do great things. But I, I believe there's so much more. I believe that if as a church we unite, that we will be unstoppable. So what does that mean? Put, let me put a picture for you. And, you know, I, I will put up my hand to say I don't go to the Thursday night prayer meetings. I will put my hand up and say I don't do that at the moment. I need to change. I go to the Friday morning prayer meetings, but I don't think that's enough. To me, the vision of unified church is, is as many people as can come to the prayer meetings. To me, that's a unified church. To me, it's, it's a unified church is people giving of themselves for others. To me, a unified church is, is people saying, what can I do, not what can I get? And I'm not saying that this church is full of people that just want things. But that's what a unified church looks like. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. I don't know about your situation today. I don't know about what you face tomorrow when you go back to work. But I do know this that we have a God advantage, that we're more than conquerors, that we're blessed beyond comparison, that we live in a glorious freedom as children of God, that we have God for us, so then who can stand against us? They're the things I do know. And I want to encourage you this morning. God has called you for a reason and a purpose. Let me be more specific. God has called you to this church for a reason and a purpose. And that reason and that purpose is to turn this world upside down. And the only way we can do that is if we do it together. My vision is that when Pastor Mike gets back next week, that he will sense something in the spiritual realm that he'll know everyone's behind in a new way the next level up you know this church is so great we've got so many great people that does fabulous things and i'm no way saying this church is anything but that but just the next level guys that's what we need the next level the next level the next level i've got this uh, picture and and i've talked about it in the prayer meeting but i've got this picture we've got some great pastors in this church we've got pastor mike pastor carolina pastor bob and and you know i see them lifted up on our shoulders doing what they need to do for jesus you know, we, we can't all be full-time pastors and, you know, we've all got work to do and that sort of stuff. I work 12 hours a day and, um, you know, I'm always busy. But I can stand them up on my shoulders 
I can support them. I can stand behind them and encourage them. I can say to them, God is there with you. I'm there with you. And together we can change the world. Amen. Please stand up. We're going to sing this song. Oh uh-huh.